You're listening to the NYC Media Lab podcast. This episode was recorded on May 15th at NYC Media Lab's Machines Plus Media event, hosted at Bloomberg. The discussion centered on regulating the platforms. While discussion of potential new regulations for the technology companies is somewhat muted in the United States, it's raging in the UK and Europe. And while many observers agree more transparency and accountability for the platforms is desirable, new rules could have unintended consequences. This discussion sought to answer what are the parameters for healthy regulation. The participants included Paul Barrett at the NYU Center for Business and Human Rights, Kevin Carty at Open Markets Institute, Claire Wardle, a research fellow at the Shorenstein Center, and Nicholas Thompson, the editor-in-chief of Wired. I'm Justin Hendricks, executive director of NYC Media Lab, and I moderated the discussion. Um, so uh, we're going to get started with the next panel in just a moment. Please come on and join me, panelists. We'll get started here. Um, just quickly, I want to uh, plug something. If you want to continue this discussion um, around misinformation in particular, we are hosting a thing called the Fake News Horror Show on June 7th and 8th in Brooklyn. Um, and it's intended to be a little tongue-in-cheek. So um, the idea is to look at some of these technologies that um, uh, we're going to be discussing a little later today, uh, these, these kind of uh, deep fakes and, and audio fakes and some of the rest of that. Uh, and really kind of imagine uh, what those things are about. So if you want to see some of that stuff on display, you want to know how it works, uh, Fake News Horror Show, June 7th and 8th in downtown Brooklyn. Uh, should be a lot of fun, okay? Um, so uh, next we have a, a panel to kind of carry on in the theme of the morning, um, and I'm excited about this discussion. Um, we're going to look at regulating the platform, so looking at regulating the, the, the big Internet companies, so very much in, in, uh, in line with uh, the discussion we've just had. I've got an excellent panel to do that, but first I think we should poll the room a little bit. I'm going to ask some clunky questions just to try to understand where you all are. Um, so how many people here think we should regulate uh, the internet platforms uh, more, more, uh, more strongly? So Facebook, Google, uh, and the rest. Raise your hands, please, if you think we should regulate those companies. Okay, not so many of you. How many of you are opposed to seeing uh, uh, those companies more heavily regulated? Okay, not so many. How many of you are totally undecided? Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, so there is, uh, I think, room to either sway a few people or inform a few people in this, in this audience. Um, we'll see where we get. Um, the panel that we have in front of us, I think, uh, has, has mixed opinions on this. Um, but I think I want to start uh, here with Nicholas Thompson and ask you, um, the fact that we're having this discussion, which I do believe is a discussion that's uh, unfolding across the country right now and across the world, how do we get here? <laughs> How did we get to the point where everybody's so mad at Silicon Valley they want to regulate it? That's right. Um, all right. Well, I think my sense of how we got to the point of where everybody's mad at Silicon Valley and, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has to sit there and be asked softball questions by congressmen for 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> we got there because there were a bunch of concerns. And I like to think of it as sort of four different strains of argument. Um, there was concern about privacy. It was pretty small for like 14 years. It got big about two months ago, but uh, there's that concern. There's a more important concern about the power of the Silicon Valley companies, right? And if you look at market capitalization, we're at Bloomberg here, go look in your terminal, look at the five biggest companies 10 years ago, the five biggest companies today, look at the growth, look at the profits of those companies. And it's clear that the biggest tech companies are taking a huge amount of profits, they're making huge amounts of profits. So there's that, that concern. Then there's the concern about addiction and the sort of the larger concern that these things that they've made, these incredible devices, you know, we have more power in our pockets than Ronald Reagan had at his disposal. They're not making our lives better, right? Because we're getting sucked into our phones. 
So those concerns are coming from like different camps and they're different like interest groups and nonprofit groups that are pushing these arguments and that sort of tension is building. And then there's the 2016 election. And what happens in the 2016 election, in my analysis, is that, uh, let's talk about Facebook. So Facebook is very concerned, very concerned about appearing biased. And there's a story that happens, comes out about six months before the election where it says that the small part of Facebook called Trending Topics is biased against Republicans. Facebook flips out completely. They get a letter from Senator Toon, who <coughs> runs the Commerce Committee, which, runs the, which has some control over the FTC, which has the consent decree against Facebook. Facebook's management goes nuts. They send all their lawyers to Washington. They send their lawyers to Washington. They invite all the Republicans out to Menlo Park. But more importantly, from that moment on, they kind of stick their heads in the sand. And they're like, mm, we're not going to really pay attention to fake news. They don't really notice the Russia stuff. They don't do anything because they're worried about stopping any content that would help Trump because they don't want to look biased. Then the election happens. Trump wins. Everybody in Silicon Valley is like, oh my god. What did we do? Did we break American democracy? And so you combine all of these concerns. You combine the privacy, the concerns about power, the concerns about addiction with the sense that Silicon Valley broke American democracy. And then boom, that's how you end up in the moment you have today. Bunch of other factors, but that's the abbreviated story. Claire, I want to go to you next because you, you've been involved now uh, in, in so many different efforts to sort of battle disinformation in particular across the social media platforms. Uh, and you were recently involved in this high-level expert group in Europe that looked at this problem. Um, and yet it came down on the side of urging against regulation. How'd you get to that point? Well, I enjoy sitting here as the token woman and the token European. Um, so, yes, we were part of this EU Commission high-level group on... I don't use the term, but that, that term. Yeah. Um, and understandably, it was 39 people who were stakeholders from broadcasters, print journalists, academics, fact-checkers, civil society, and the platforms themselves. And the idea was that we would come up with a document that everybody agreed with, and you can imagine that the platforms themselves didn't want to come out. What it did do, and it was a fascinating insight into power plays in Brussels, is that there was a discussion about bringing a sector inquiry to the platforms, which if you don't understand in the European context, that means big potential fines. That's a, it's all about um, the same kind of idea about trust, which is actually looking at competition. And so the minute that came on the table, the platforms sat up, took it very seriously. And so I actually think we got a bit more from the platforms than we would have done otherwise. We got a code of conduct. But the question when we talk about regulation is, where are the teeth? Whose teeth? Who belongs? You know, who owns the teeth? And what we're going to do about it? In you know, Europe, we love regulation much more than you love it in America. Um, <laughs> but it still comes back to, and what I would hope is, we've had 18 months of panels about fake news. I need 18 months of conversations where we deep dive into regulation. What do we mean when we say it? Whose point of view are we actually saying? How do we define these entities? Because I think, again, I'm glad that we're having this, but this is the first panel I've been on about regulation. Well, this, this uh, discussion is very different around the world. In the U.S., in the November 1st and uh, October 31st testimonies, I, I searched the transcripts for the word regulation, regulating, didn't find it. Yeah. Uh, but in Europe, in the parliamentary testimony, uh, which you participated in, the word appeared dozens and dozens and dozens of times. So yeah. it seems to be much more the case across the pond. But are we regulating the content or are we regulating the data? And I think we, haven't, we have to understand that distinction before we can have these conversations. So you're right, the question you asked was clunky because yeah. I think people don't want to regulate speech. And we are going to split this in, in two now because uh, it is a, a bit about speech and then a bit about the competition okay. issues. Uh, but Paul, uh, you uh, published a report recently on the problem of, of, of hate speech, terror content, right. some of the worst uh, abuses of, of the internet platforms and came to very much the same conclusion that Claire did, that, that we really ought to be careful about regulation. 
Right. I think the question is, is whether you, in, in this country, trust the United States Congress to regulate con content online. And I, I don't know if you want to take a sampling of our, of our audience, but I, I certainly don't. And I think it would create uh, immediately a temptation for overreaching uh, by Congress and then probably uh, overcompensation by the platforms trying to stay out of the way of whatever the regulatory punishment might be. And we, we'd uh, get to a place that we really don't want to be and, and can't be under the First Amendment. So we'll have to split these two things in half, the, the, the competition issues and the speech issues. Um, I think that's an important part of the distinction. Um, but I, I, I want to get to open markets because um, you, you all have uh, come down very strong on the side of the, the competition question. I'm going to read this because I think it's worth uh, one, of the, one of the few sort of set of d direct kind of um, uh, recommendations that I've, I've seen. Open markets calls on the FTC to take the following actions. Uh, impose strict privacy rules on Facebook. Spin off Facebook's ad network. Reverse the approvals for Facebook purchases of WhatsApp and Instagram. Prohibit all future acquisitions by Facebook for at least five years. Establish a system to ensure the transparency of all political communications on Facebook. Require Facebook to adopt open and transparent standards, something I think uh, Claire would actually be in support of. Establish whether Facebook violated the 2011 consent decree. Threaten to bring further legal action against fa Facebook unless top executives immediately agree to work with the FTC. And establish whether top executives enabled, encouraged, or oversaw violations of the consent decree. Uh, is there anything else you want to throw in there? <laughs> uh, well, it's a, it's a long list of harms we've got, so we've got a long list of uh, policy recommendations. I think since then, one I've been thinking about uh, is you know, potentially blocking Facebook and Google from entering new markets. Uh, you know, Facebook the other day discussed going into dating, which I think is an interesting example of how Facebook has gotten to its current position by being a communications service provider that hoovers up a ton of data about the people who use that service, and that gives it a massive competitive advantage over anybody else in dating. So that's something I'd, I'd add. But one thing I'd note is that none of those policy things really touch on speech per se. What they do is they, they're designed to structure the system un, in which speech occurs, right? We're looking for creating a media system where free speech and a free press can thrive. We're not interested in, in regulating speech itself, but rather creating that context. So that's part of the issue we've got, is what the first panel was talking about, this sort of uh, uh, issue we've got where human judgment, speed, information, um, it's all kind of in a muddle at the moment. Um, and Claire, what do you think? We need, we need more humans involved in the mix, and is regulation part of that? Yeah, I mean, one thing after hearing Zuckerberg talk in front of Congress was every second sentence involved is, okay, AI will solve all of our problems. We are going to get there, but that's based on how good our training data is. We're only going to have good training data if we've got humans there. You know, in the great new book, Algorithms of Oppression, you only have to read that for one chapter to recognize, you know, it's not that we have racist engineers in Silicon Valley. We just have engineers who haven't necessarily thought this through. And my favorite story is if you Google CEO on Google Images, you actually get all men. The only woman is CEO Barbie. Like, until we recognize that, we need humans on top of the incredible machines that are being built, because in order to do this at scale, we're going to need that. But just to go back in terms of how do we regulate data as opposed to speech, you know, speech in the European context is very different to the US context. You know, your First Amendment, I don't want to touch that. But how could we even think about a global solution to this? And in America, we like to think about America, but this is a global problem. And, you know, the piece in the New York Times about Sri Lanka the other day, I think, made everybody understand the impact of Facebook in Sri Lanka and Myanmar, we know. So if we're thinking about regulation, how can we think about a global response? And we can't think about speech in that context because it's too contextual. It's our First Amendment, Claire. <laughs> Can I, I want to say something about the, the proposals from Open Markets that I think they're a really good job. There's a spectrum of regulation. Maybe one way to think about it is like 
On the easy side, there's stuff like Honest Ads Act, right? That's the legislation by Mark Warner that you should have sort of similar disclosures on tech advertisements and television advertisements. There's the transparency of algorithms, transparency of communications, transparency of political donation, donations. That's stuff that Open Markets is talking about. That stuff you should definitely do, right? If you do it, if you have smart people putting it together, you can probably get good regulation that makes everything better. In the middle, you've got like GDPR, privacy regulations, you've got the German hate speech regulation. That's really hard. Right? If you do it right, you can improve some things with some cost. If you do it wrong, you make a lot of things worse while making a few things better. Then on the far end, you've got, let's split the companies up. Let's spin off Instagram. Let's split up WhatsApp. Let's stop all acquisitions. Right? So you have like the antitrust competition stuff. That, I mean, my position would be given the, given the way our current government works, the people in charge of our government, in charge of Congress and the Senate, in charge of our Department of Justice, the antitrust division, the capacity of them to split up these tech companies, which have done all kinds of wonderful things while also doing harm, I would not trust at all. So my perspective is, yes, okay, let's really debate it, let's have lots of panels, let's discussions, no. <laughs> well, I think, you know, on the, on the point of uh, competition policy, I think one useful thing that we think about is that the U.S. has been here before. We've faced dominant communication service providers before in this country. I would, I would have us look at AT&T. In 1913, AT&T was essentially a monopolistic telephone provider that had cornered the market and was one by one crushing independent phone companies and ensuring that it had dominated the market. In 1913, after Woodrow Wilson was elected, the U.S. government entered into a consent decree with AT&T by which it ordered the company to spin off Western Union. It blocked the company from acquiring independent telephone operators, which was the only kind of acquisition that AT&T was doing. So we can understand that as a block on future acquisitions. And it said you have to open up your system so that independent telephone operators could access the AT&T long distance system, which was, of course, the, the center of, of the Bell system. So we've been here before. We have split up these companies. And you know, we still had a really successful telephone market. Uh, we still had uh, actually really great penetration of the telephone as technology. And so while it is hard to imagine the antitrust division or the FTC doing this today, the truth is we have done it before. And we've done it more recently. The, the government uh, also did a 1956 consent decree with AT&T, which also helped create a more competitive market. So our you know, encouragement is to say, let's not only consider competition policy, but consider competition policy within the context of, of US history. Where have we been? Where have we been before? And what lessons can we take from that? Paul, do you have a view on antitrust? Yeah, I wouldn't uh, r rule it out by any means. I, I think it's something that needs to be taken uh, case by case. And uh, I think the, the size and market reach of a company like, uh, like Facebook is a cause for concern, not necessarily to go in and break it up into a thousand little pieces. Um, but, you know, if, if the next acquisition were to tip it over the edge of having uh, some type, something close to a monopoly, then that would be problematic and deserves to be considered. And certainly Facebook and Google, I mean, one of the things that in the media space, of course, they seem to be gobbling up all the growth, um, and that's obviously to the detriment of, of the media ecosystem. Um, is, is, uh, is it your view that also that artificial intelligence and their capability there kind of puts them in a different place vis-a-vis uh, -vis competition? Uh, well, I would think that maybe it's the opposite, that the ability to invent um, you know, new types of uh, AI uh, and, and other tools uh, of that sort would, would actually be an argument uh, that, that they're constantly facing competitive threats of, of various sorts. At least I'm, I'm sure that would be what Zuckerberg's uh, lawyers would argue. But you could also make the counter argument that 
AI traditionally, or as it's constituted now, really works on giant data sets. Mm. And so it's actually just a way of consolidating power. The companies that have all the data are going to build the best AI, and they're going to get even more data, and they're going to build better AI, and they're going to get more money, and they're going to get more data, acquire more companies. So it's only going to sort of strengthen and consolidate, which would be the opposite. Yeah. So Nick, what do you think right now is the calculus inside these companies with regard to regulation? What are we seeing them do in response to the fact that this discussion is beginning to unfold around the world? We're seeing them trying to win. They know that regulation is a battle of public opinion. So you're going to see a lot of advertisements. You're going to see a lot of media outreach. You're going to see a lot of things that you do to try to change public opinion. You're going to see a lot of lobbyists, because there's an inside game, too. And then you're going to see a lot of self-regulation to try to get out ahead. So then somebody says, hey, you need to change the way your ad policies work. Oh, wait, we already changed our ad policies. Mm -hmm. So you'll see public inside DC, and you'll also see the stuff that is good, self-regulation. Like the changes that Facebook has made, the changes that these companies have made, for the most part, are very beneficial. They don't go far enough, but they're good. Claire, you watching the self-regulation uh, is something that you, know, you encourage in the, in, the, uh, in the expert group's report. Um, are you seeing enough of it happen at the moment to, to give you confidence that these companies have turned the, turned the corner? I mean, I ha would have to say, when historians look back, I completely agree with you about the trending stories because also at that point it made Facebook think they'd only really got good press up until then. It was the first time that they really got hauled over the coals and they put their head in the sand because like, well, we can't really trust the press. They stopped going to journalism conferences. But I would say if we look back over the last year, when we've seen the best self-regulation, it's after journalists have done great work. Mm -hmm. I mean, journalists like Julia Angrin or Craig Silverman, or you know, there's a bunch of really great people that have actually- Jonathan looked, Albright. Yeah, Jonathan Albright, who've actually found stuff, you know, looked at the data that was accessible and be like, and we're finding a bunch of stuff here that Facebook themselves are saying that they can't. And every time, you know, YouTube had kind of <clears throat> got a free ride until end of January, beginning of February. A couple of great pieces came out. Juniper Downs got, again, in front of the select committee in D.C., got, you know, really pulled apart. And we saw YouTube say, well, we're going to do something about our recommendation algorithms. So I actually think when we look back over the last year, it's because journalists have put pressure on them and they have moved. Even in Ireland at the moment, we're about to have a referendum mm -hmm. around abortion. Yeah. It's been people on Twitter, journalists pointing out that American money is going in to pay for ads in Ireland, a little bit the Russians paying for ads in America, uh, and saying, this isn't right, what's going on? And as a response, we've seen Google and Facebook take action in Ireland. So that's why we have to keep putting pressure on them, because it's the only thing I'm seeing that's moving the needle in terms of self-regulation. Well, one thing you push quite a lot in that report, and, uh, and that you've, you've talked about even in your testimony in front of uh, uh, Parliament, is this idea of we need, we need access to the information, we need to get into the algorithms, we need access to the data. What do you want? So not really access to the algorithms because, of course, they just say it's our secret source. Mm -hmm. But what we need to see is transparency around the output. And that's what the journalists have been doing, essentially saying, well, let's look at the YouTube recommendation agent. Oh, funnily enough, all we see is recommendation of more white supremacist videos. Um, so once you have that, but we need access to that. And there needs to be an independent auditing association, whether it's academics, whoever it is. Facebook have just come out and said they're going to have a panel which academics can apply for data. Sounds great. Lovely headlines they will only give us data that's cleaned and they've looked at already and know that it's fine. Yeah. You know, the idea that they're just going to, nobody, they're not going to let us in. So we have to have independent auditors who can go in and say, I need to have a look at this. And the fact that we don't have that, um, I find incredible. Well, there is a hard trade-off, right? I mean, how did this big mess start? It started with an academic getting data from Facebook <laughs> and then you're selling it to Cambridge Analytica, right? I mean, you need to... There are 200 more of them, yet, by the way. It's really hard, right? This is... Like, I totally want independent audits. I want people to get access to data. I want access to the data. And I really don't want anyone to have access to my data. And it's a tension. Yeah. And Facebook is working through this. But you're completely right. It's a solvable problem, but it's a legit problem right now. Isn't that part of the issue that a lot of these seem like solvable problems? I'm always struck by the fact that um, 
it seems like the only uh, entity that can't spot a bot on Twitter is Twitter. Um, <laughs> why, why can't we? Some of these things seem obvious. Well, I think uh, our answer to that is that we look at this, and Louis Brandeis had this term of absentee management, that uh, once a business gets too big, it's essentially impossible to manage it effectively. And I think we're seeing that in YouTube, Facebook, Google, Twitter, all of these companies. They're simply too big to manage. And so this is why they always talk about AI and artificial intelligence and how they're going to fix this, because they simply do not have the human power to actually address this. And we think that that argues for you know, kind of knocking them down to size, you know, uh, creating companies or, you know, using antitrust law to break companies up to the point where they're actually manageable, not just manageable by their own CEOs, but manageable by, by government. Um, and I, I'd like to go back to the example of Ireland, because I think that's a really good example of, of so, so what Ireland did is that they've got this, uh, this vote on, a, uh, on a, a rule that would essentially uh, legalize abortion, right? You know, and so, Google and Facebook, noting that you know, there was some outside money coming in and funding ads, uh, Facebook shut off ads from outside forces, outside you know, groups that are paying it, so if you're a, you know, American. And Google shut off, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I remember, all ads. They shut off all ads. Now that's really interesting. It's a private company shutting off a huge amount of online political ads. Now maybe that's for the best, but at the end of the day, this is a, a corporation. This is not a government. This is a corporation deciding what ads should be you know, part of the public discourse in this thing, that's an issue of public importance and something that should be up to democratic majorities, not up to a corporation that has essentially a monopoly over the advertising business. And so that's kind of what we look at is, what is the, the structure of this company and how is this implicating it? And so we're not necessarily opposed to Google and Facebook making decisions about what ads to, to let through, rather just that when they make those decisions, Facebook and Google should not be so big that they suddenly knock off you know, most of online advertising for this thing. Um, We're going to open it up to questions from the audience in just a moment, but Paul, I just wanted to uh, give you a, a shot to, on this. Uh, you worry about unintended consequences of regulation in that report. What are some of those that you could imagine happening? Well, I think the, the main uh, possibility is uh, overcompensation, actually, by, by the platforms. You, you put a, a rule in, and then in order to avoid whatever penalty you attach to the rule, the companies go even further than, than, than they need to, and I think you just see a, a diminishment of free expression. I mean, it's, I don't think it's more complicated than that. Okay. All right. So I'm going to take some questions from the audience. We've got mics that are uh, running around. I've got one, uh, one right up here in the front, and then I'll come here. And if you wouldn't mind, just identify yourself. Sure. This is uh, Sri Ram. I work for CNBC. Not, not on the media side of it, just on the tech side of it. Uh, I heard a couple of things right in this discussion. One is that data, right? Data is the key. How do you control the data? Second thing I heard is that privacy, right? Like if you open up the data, what are the issues of the privacy? Um, and third thing is that how do we process the data, right? Using AI, right? I mean, that's the mantra now, right? The, the universal acceptance that we can't control the data, AI has to control the data, right? So what I want to hear from you is that because there is, with the blockchain, right? that you have a distributed data ledger, right? Where you can distribute the data and you can apply AI on top of it just to address the concerns, right? If, if like a Facebook is holding the data, right? I don't have the answers. I'm just trying to pose some questions is that 
if we can break up the data, like make the data democratized. Okay. By so one, and that is something that people have suggested that maybe data portability or um, uh, you know getting that that unit of information that these companies are trading on somehow making that portable would introduce more competition into the system. Nick, do you have a view on that? Will blockchain save us? Um, well, I think there are two. Those are two separate things. A, you could have more data portability, which could lead to more competition, right? The one example that's cited recently is the privacy protections that Facebook implemented made it harder for people to build social dating networks on top of Facebook data, right? They actually would make it harder for the next Tinder to start, right? So if you allow, if you have weaker privacy controls on Facebook, it's easier to start a competitor, which may be good. Um, on the blockchain, super interesting point. So blockchain is super slow, super efficient, right? The number of transactions it can process at the moment is incredibly slow. But you can imagine somebody recreating Twitter on the blockchain, right? Where all of the stuff that is currently done by the giant database at Twitter and all the information that is stored there is stored instead on a distributed system built by the people who you know, buy into and help create that blockchain. And you can imagine, in fact, that being much more efficient than having everything centralized to Twitter. So the blockchain is actually a technology which perhaps could lead to some of the things that we all want for a more competitive tech ecosystem. It could be an interesting enough technology that it allows competitors to these things which seem completely entrenched at the moment. Was it too good to be true? Yes, but maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, Got a but question. maybe not. Question right here. Hi, uh, thanks. Uh, my name is Jeff Wise. I'm a freelance uh, science journalist. Um, we're talking about how the system works, the media ecosystem works, what we should do to make it better. Um, I want to raise the issue of how well do we understand how this system works today and how can we understand how it will work tomorrow? You know, a lot of what we're talking about is the world as it was two years ago when a lot of us were absolutely flummoxed here. And remember, Facebook said, oh, no, 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 there was, we, we, didn't, we took very, very few ads that had no impact, et cetera. So there's sort of a meta problem here of like, how do we even know what's really going on? So I wanna put this question to Clara because one of the things that the expert group's recommendation actually included in it, which was, which everyone should read that report, by the way, was an incredible investment across Europe in these centers of excellence, these research centers, um, including this sort of what they thought of as a shining city on a hill research, you know, um, uh, collaboration group that would would answer these questions. Um, do you think we need sort of a national infrastructure to understand? this issue of tech media and democracy? Yeah, I mean, the first meeting in Brussels, we said, let's put it on the table all the academic research we have about the scale of the problem. And, you know, we keep talking about it, but where's the evidence? And we didn't have anything. We had some stuff in the US, but again, it was kind of two years old because of how long it takes. And there was nothing in the European context. So there's a lot of stuff about illegal speech, but this legal speech space that we're talking about, we know almost nothing. Part of the problem is that Brendan Nyham will publish a report and journalists will put headlines that says fake news wasn't a problem. Truthfully, we have about five jigsaw puzzle pieces of a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle piece that as a family, we will all finish around the holidays of 2050. Like what we have now is a tiny drop in the ocean in terms of our knowledge. And so one of my issues about regulation is we shouldn't be regulating what we don't actually understand. And so until we have that, and we can't because we've got to get access to data, we can't talk about the scale. So we research what we can see, which is Twitter, and some access to some of the platforms. But really, we're only researching what we can get access to. We can't understand how information moves across platforms or moves to somebody in their basement who comes up to dinner and says to their family, you're never going to guess Hillary's a paedophile. Because we can't measure the way that information moves across. So we measure what we can see. And that doesn't give us a real understanding of the whole ecosystem. But we want to regulate it. Mm -hmm. Ramin, do you have a question back there? 
Yeah, one, one of the panelists brought up AT&T, which was successfully divested, and then uh, the government went after Microsoft as well for access to data through the OS because they had a 90% uh, monopoly in that. So my question is, do you think that, it, but the Microsoft issue went away after Bush got elected, right? And, uh, and then technology seemed to take care of the issue on its own. Do you think that technology here, uh, advancement of technology can take care of this problem naturally without regulation? And uh, also, as part of that, should the Telecom Act of 1996 be readdressed where they allowed ownership to be broader for individual companies across access to data and media? Yeah, so I don't think technology is going to solve this problem. Uh, technology generally doesn't solve political problems. And these are political problems that inculcate, uh, you know, involve political principles. Secondarily, I do think we should reconsider the Telecom Act in 1996, less because it applies to the big tech platforms that we're talking about here, but rather because it allowed for a consolidation of the, the media system that I think uh, we ought to regret. Uh, truthfully, I think we should have a more decentralized, diverse uh, media system. And the Telecom Act in 96 essentially broke down all of the walls that uh, kept media uh, businesses from entering different markets so that used to be you could just do radio or you could just do newspaper. Um, and then the Telecom Act in 96 allowed a couple of corporations to essentially roll this all up. And the AT&T Time Warner merger, for instance, which is kind of an egregious example of this underlying issue, is, is but one small example of this much larger problem that we've had since 96. So yes, I, I do think we should reconsider it um, now. Paul or Nick, do you want to jump in there? Go ahead. Right. No, okay. Yeah. Uh, another question from the audience? I've got one right here. Um, Pam Taylor from Bertelsmann. Um, I'm from the U.S. originally, but I've actually been living in Germany for uh, the past eight years. Um, so we're all really excited about GDPR, um, <laughs> which um, I'm sure any other European here is. And I guess I just want to talk a little bit more about that. You know, how is that impacting American-based tech companies? Um, it seems like there's some hope maybe for self-regulation, but what kind of learnings can we take away from it? What kind of things do we think are not going to work here? Um, and just overall, what's your, your feeling towards that? Thank and, you. And will we get a GDPR in the U.S., do you think, in the next uh, decade? Nick? I would just say, quickly, GDPR is in some ways global regulation because it's, you do have you know, U.K. visitors in the United States. You have to follow their laws. GDPR, as written, is so sweeping that... Bloomberg has to follow GDPR when you access its services from this room. So, or I guess if you're not a German citizen, but whatever, for a European citizen here. So GDPR will have global effects. It's clearly having a huge impact on self-regulation. Every company is trying to figure out how to get as much in compliance as they can. You know, there's a huge question about how it will be enforced. You know, there are all these like tiny micro kind of extremely broad regulations. So we don't really know exactly what GDPR is or how it will be interpreted by the courts. But without question, it's having a huge effect on tech companies. Will we have one in the United States? No, but we'll probably have some kind of privacy regulation. I mean, the U.S. just culturally has such a, is, cares less about, or prioritizes other things vis-a-vis -vis privacy more. And also, you know, the Europeans are kind of resentful of all the American tech companies. They don't mind, like, cracking down on them. America kind of loves and is proud of its tech companies and sort of is resistant to cracking down on them. So you have that tension, too. Okay. Paul, anything to add there? Yeah, I'd be skeptical about meaningful um, privacy re regulation. That idea has been in the air for a while. Obama had a, a, a proposal and didn't go anywhere, and I I'm just w would be very surprised if we saw anything approaching what's going on in Europe. Certainly not under this, this particular government. But no. why are Americans more mad? I don't get yeah. it. Like, my email has just been so much more improved the last two weeks. So people are like, do you really want to keep getting these shitty emails? I'm like, no, thanks. 
And I just, I just feel like I don't, I cannot understand the American that people aren't more mad about the fact that their privacy is all yeah. over the place. There is a kind of, kind of attitude that that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. I even found it with some of the students. I see Michael Young, who we co-taught a class uh, across the city. Um, <laughs> there were some students even in the course who were very aware of these issues and, and yet sort of see the privacy question as just you throw your hands up. What can we do about it? Um, as far as uh, we look at it, and I, I think I look at it. And I think people have a lot of good intuitions about this stuff. Yeah. You know, not not necessarily privacy, but big tech generally. Uh, I think of my roommate, who is a close friend of mine. I've known him for a long time. He doesn't care about privacy that much. He's always like, yeah, these companies they collect all my data, they advertise all this stuff. But he, still, he's kind of you know creeped out a little bit by Google and Facebook. Um, you know, he still thinks that these companies are a little too powerful. So my kind of point of view is that people have a lot of kind of the right, you know intuitions as far as I'm concerned. They're, they're looking at these and saying, well, these companies are a little too big, a little too powerful, even if they haven't gone all the way to the point of being you know, concerned about their privacy and setting up a virtual private network and you know, watching out for their own security. Even if they don't quite all the way go there, I think they, they see that there's a lot of concentrated power and that perhaps too much of it in the hands of, of a few big companies. So I'm going to ask a couple last questions, and then we're going to finish up and have a coffee break. But um, one of the arguments that's made against regulation from um, more the libertarian or the e economists is the idea that, that regulation really will just lock in um, the, the sort of advantage that Facebook and Google have. Um, do we see that as a possibility if it, if it does come along? That, uh, and in fact, when Zuckerberg invites it, as he seemed to do, um, you know, when he was on Capitol Hill. Totally. I mean, that's a huge problem with regulation, right? Because in order to, it creates a barrier to entry into markets because you have to figure out how the regulation works. You need to have to set your system up, not so it's maximally efficient for the two employees you have in your startup, but so that it, you know, follows these thousands of laws. And then you also hire all these lobbyists so you can only hire when you're entrenched in order to comply with the law. So it could completely create barriers to entry and carry barriers to competition, which would be the reverse of what we want, because it is true. Like one of the biggest problems is lack of competition in the tech industry, we totally want that. But perversely, a lot of the people who think this is a huge problem are pushing for more regulation that is just going to entrench them. Mm -hmm. So that's an issue. Paul? Yeah, I think that's right. And a, a quick analogy that occurs to me um, from years gone by was the effort to uh, you know, first litigate against and then regulate the uh, cigarette industry, um, which was accomplished. And what that did was lock in the positions of the large tobacco manufacturers and make it harder for uh, new entrants to, uh, to challenge them. So I, I think that's exactly right. I'm going to ask one last question, which I don't know that any of you will have a view on. But one of the things that GDPR does uh, get into some detail on, which I find interesting, is um, data and privacy for children. Um, we've got Facebook, which has launched Messenger for Kids, which allows six-year-olds to get onto the platform. We don't know what happens to their data necessarily. Um, you know, is, is there, are there points like that that we should be able to agree on as a society, uh, Claire or Kevin? Yeah, I mean, I do think so much of this, and I always keep thinking about how historians are going to look at this period, is just unintended consequence after unintended consequence. I think your point about how do you manage something when it's got so large, and I do think with younger children, we're just not having that conversation whatsoever. And at one of those testimonies, they kept asking, how do you protect kids? And YouTube was like, you have to be 13 to use our service. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, because kids don't know how to tick that box. Like, I, just, I do find it astonishing that we haven't had those conversations. And I do worry in 15 years' time when sociologists are like, uh-oh. You know, and, yeah. and I completely agree with you about the regulation point about they're too big, what do we do? I do think historians will look back and say they missed that boat. And I worry about AI, that we're all having panels about it. In 10 years' time, we're like, uh-oh, those unintended consequences <laughs> that we didn't see coming. Yeah. So I don't, but I don't know. I feel like we're just powerless. We just keep having conferences. 
<laughs> well, what should we do as, as activists then, uh, Claire, if there are some in the room? Do We just have to find mechanisms that are not another Slack channel to talk to each other and actually do something. And I do think, you know, hearing about how... We, we, yeah, I, th I mean, Justin, you're an example of this, which is how do we do more of picking up the phone, having conversations, writing stuff that actually is meaningful, doing more journalism that is moving the needle. You know, I do think that stuff does matter. So, I mean, I can be facetious about it, but I think, yeah, we do talk, but a little bit more action. What else should we do? Well, I think I've been kind of impressed by, uh, well, impressed to a certain extent, uh, the extent to which Congress people have started to kind of notice this problem. I I'm not trusting that Congress is going to come up tomorrow and, you know, create the perfect American alternative to G GDPR that's going to, you know, achieve all of our political principles that we want, et cetera. But I do find it heartening that, that while looking at the, the Zuckerberg hearings a couple weeks ago, that it really was, it really was members of, of both parties who, who were you know, raising, I think, important points. I would raise Dan Sullivan, Alaska, senator, uh, who raised this exact point about regulation uh, cementing the, the biggest corporations. And, and from for my you know, point of view about that question about will you know, us having regulation just cement the position of Facebook and Google, I think it depends on the type of regulation. If we break up Facebook into WhatsApp, Instagram, uh, and Facebook, uh, is that really going to be that hard to create a barrier to entry to somebody else? No, antitrust laws are generally pretty easy to understand compared to, say, GDPR. So I think it depends on the type of regulation, but it's a, it's a point that we should really consider. But like I said, I've, I've been heartened by the extent to which public officials have started to pay attention to this issue. Do they have the language? No. Do they have the best understanding? No. But do they have you know, some of the, the right ideas? Are they start to moving in the right direction and asking the right questions? That I feel a little bit better towards. So I think you know, in, people should, if they want to you know, make some change, engage with public officials. They should you know, do politics. They should go to rallies and meetings and you know, uh, unionize with their coworkers. They should you know, organize political power. That's, that's really what's going to make the difference here. So in my last question, which uh, I'll, I'll put to anybody who cares to comment, there is a Facebook shareholder meeting coming up on May 31st. Uh, there is a privacy uh, provision that, that is put forward to the board. Uh, by some of the, the larger uh, pension funds. Do we expect shareholder activism to, to do anything useful? I think that all kinds of activism does something useful. I mean, no, yes, the shareholder resolution will lead to discussion, it will lead to news stories, it will lead to conversation, it will not lead to actual any policy change. But all forms of conversation do make a difference because there's so many different pressure points. The one pressure point I would add you know, I would love our government to be able to regulate effectively. If you could clone Jessica Rosenversal and have a thousand of her in the government, I'd have a lot of faith in the government. But I don't have a lot of faith in the government. I do have a lot of faith in the engineers and the kind of the mid-level employees at these companies. And so the extent that they're talking, learning, thinking, is the executives, the thing they fear the most is those people leaving, right? And those people not feeling proud to work at Facebook or Google. And so to the extent that those people are bringing up conversations, I actually think that there's real change that can come from them. So whether they're reading about shareholder activism, whether they're reading, watching hearings, whether they're reading the press, uh, I think that does make a big difference. I want to thank this panel. Thanks, panel. Thanks, moderator. Thanks for listening to the NYC Media Lab podcast. You've been listening to audio of a panel discussion on regulating the platforms, featuring Paul Barrett at NYU Center for Business and Human Rights, Kevin Carty at the Open Markets Institute, Claire Wardle at the Shorenstein Center, and Nicholas Thompson, Editor-in-Chief of Wired. I'm Justin Hendricks, Executive Director of NYC Media Lab. I hope you'll continue the conversation on Twitter. Tag us at NYC Media Lab. Thanks for listening. <laughs>